Most often, parents and grandparents will work hard, skimp on themselves in order to put something away for their children and grandchildren. Of course, in some situations, I've seen with my own eyes how easy money can ruin lives, and I've seen ruined lives that uh, were the result of easy money. In fact, I read not so long ago about a man who decided to retire on his $90,000 fortune that he has worked hard, invested hard, and worked wisely, and, and uh, inherited $89,000. <laughs> One of those younger generations said, uh, he said, you know, thrift is a wonderful virtue in my ancestors. And I read this week about a, a lazy young man who has never worked a day in his life. And um, he was banking all along on the hope that when his uncle dies, a very rich uncle is going to leave him a fortune. So he was just banking on that. He never worked a day in his life, was lazy, never, never, never even tried to find a job. But then his rich uncle died and had one word, one line in his will for his lazy nephew. It read, I do hereby leave to my beloved nephew all the money he owes me. What a disappointment to this guy. I remember my dear friend, the late Roy Ludwig. I miss him terribly. He used to say, it's a disaster to leave your children a financial inheritance if you have not given them a spiritual inheritance. I couldn't agree more. And the second commandment is not only a stern warning against worshiping God the wrong way, but is a stern warning about worshiping God the wrong way and passing that wrong way to your next generation. We saw in the first commandment, it has to do with worshiping the right God. And that is why the second commandment, it has to do with worshiping the right God the right way. The first of the Ten Commandments tells us that we must reject false gods. And the second commandment tells us that we must not worship the true God from any form, in any form of man-made image. The first commandment forbids us from worshiping false gods. The second commandment forbids us from worshiping God falsely. And that is why this commandment is very relevant to every believer in Jesus Christ. The first commandment tells us whom we worship. And then the second commandment immediately comes in and tells us how to worship the true God. In fact, the second commandment, if you look carefully, is probably the longest, or one of the longest at least. And I have a personal hunch on this. It's a personal opinion. It's not in the Scripture. It's because of the subtlety that is accompanied the breaking of that commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but show love to thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This commandment falls under four headings. First, you get the precept, then the premise, then the premonition, and then the promise. I had to work hard on these. What is the precept here? What's the rule? 
Don't create any representation of God, whether that representation is carved by hand or created in your imagination. That's it. That is the precept. I don't want you to misunderstand this commandment, and I think that's why you have to understand that there is a world of difference between artistic designs and the worship of these work of art. There is a world of difference between artistry and idolatry. And that is why the second part of this precept says, you shall not bow down to them nor worship them. Whether the bowing is physical bowing or mental bowing, whether the bowing is through the knees or through your intellect, it must not take place. These stained glass windows are beautiful. They're a great work of art. That's all they are. The artist designed them and a great work of art. If you ever stand there and talk to them, you are breaking the second commandment. If you ever try to bow to one of those, then you are breaking the second commandment. But you know what? There are people who actually make image of the true God that's even worse than that. It's a little more subtle than that. There are people who make an idol out of the ministry. And they confuse. These are born-again, wonderful ministers of the gospel. And they confuse ministry with God. And in reality, all day long, what they're doing, they're bowing to the ministry, not to the living God. And the relationship with God is dependent on the relationship to the ministry. Well, this is utter confusion and should not take place. There are some people who make idol out of traditions. And they worship at the shrine of traditions. There are some people today are making idols out of the old hymns. And in reality, what they don't know is so many of these old hymns were really tunes that were sung in the pubs and in the bars in England. And the hymn writers took those tunes and they put Christian words to them so that the drunks, and when they become converted to Christ and come to church, they become familiar with the music. That's what they were doing. In fact, there's a whole program on the BBC on this whole subject alone. There's a couple of books written on that. And so instead of singing, we want more booze, which some of those tunes were designed to, to sing, they can sing glory to God. And therefore, we must not make sacred idols out of these old hymns. The original writers never intended for them to be idols for us. They, they would turn in their grave to see what we have made of them. Because I believe with all my heart that Isaac Watt and, and Charles Wesley were writing and ministering to their generation. But then there are others who make idols out of certain translations of the Bible. A few years ago, we had a, a couple in this church who were adamant that we are sinning gravely by not using the King James translation. Not only started letter writing campaign, that we are in grave sin. But when, I went, when they finally didn't get a, a response from me or they got a response they didn't like, they started writing to the vestrymen, started writing to the leadership of the church. And when they didn't hear, they finally left. Bless their hearts. I feel sorry for them. Because what they're doing, they're making an idol of a translation as if it was the original Script, I'll never forget in the early 70s when I was a young green minister in Sydney, Australia. This lady, I was using the RSV, which now is considered to be kind of old, but back then was new, at least to me. 
And she was indignant that I was using the Revised Standard Version in the, in the service, reading it in the service. And she would tell me the King James, the King James. And finally, I tried to explain to her. I said, do you know what a rascal King James was? She said, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. But I want to tell you something, young man. I want to tell you something. Listen to me. She said, if it was good enough for St. Paul, it's good enough for me. <laughs> Christians make all sorts of idols out of preachers and teachers. They're not ceasing to worship the living God, no. But they're worshiping the living God wrongly. Teachers and preachers are nothing but conduits. They're nothing but instruments of God. They should not be made idols of. There are some people who make idols out of institutions. There are some people who make idols out of denominations. They, they make all kinds of idols. And they might not bend their knees to them, but oh, they, they, they bend their minds and their hearts. They might not bow down to them, but they become obsessed with them to the point of adoration. Did you know that when the Israelites got impatient with Moses when he went up to the mountain and wanted to create an image, and they made a bull, and they were worshiping a bull, they were not really worshiping a bull. Did you know that? They were not worshiping a bull at all. They were worshiping Yahweh. As far as they were concerned, they were worshiping Yahweh. They said, what does Yahweh represent? Well, he represents power. He brought us out of Egypt. What is power? Symbol of power that they knew in Egypt was a bull. So they poured their wealth and their gold and their silver, and they made that bull image, and they bowed. This is the God who brought you out of Egypt. Because they focused only on one aspect of God, and that's what idolatry does. People are worshiping all kinds of representations of the true God. And the tragedy is that they think that they're worshiping God. When God said, do not confuse me. Do not associate me. Do not make an image of me. Now this is the precept. What about the premise for the precept? What is the reason for the rule or the command? You shall not bow down to them. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Why should you not confuse God with representations of God? Because of God's love. Some of you are probably saying, well, wait a minute, Michael. What does this love got to do with jealousy? You just said God is a jealous God. Do you mean that God forbids us making any association with him because he's a jealous God? How can he be loving and jealous at the same time? Believe me, I heard that argument from people. Are you saying jealousy is bad? No. In the truest sense of the word, jealousy is not bad. And I know I'm confusing some of you. Some of you are shaking your heads. <laughs> Why? Because we often confuse the word jealousy and we use it in the wrong way. We sometimes talk about jealousy when we really mean envy. And they're two different things, have two different meanings. It's just the way they evolved in the English language. We often use jealousy to mean that I want what somebody else has. I'm jealous of him because he has this. I'm jealous of her because she has that. I'm je- no, no, no. That is not jealousy. That's envy. We often use jealousy to mean that I want to grab for something that doesn't belong to me. No, no, that's envy. That's covetousness. 
And it's a wrong use of the word jealousy. Perhaps the word zealous or zeal may be a better word that, for us to understand right now. The word zealous or zeal means to guard that which is rightfully yours. That's what jealousy does, is to guard that which is rightfully yours. That's very different from envy. A husband who truly loves his wife cannot be indifferent if he sees her in the arms of another man. If a husband or wife does not become intensely jealous, then there's something wrong in the relationship. You see, jealousy here is a virtue. Why? Because you are protecting what is rightfully yours. And that's what God is talking about when he's talking about his children, when he's talking about being jealous about his children, when he sees them in the grip of another, whatever that other may be. He becomes jealous. He becomes zealous. Whether that is churchianity, whether it is man-made tradition, whether it is self-worship, whether it is your possessions and your net worth, whether it is your opinion and your ideas, whatever it may be, if it got hold of you, God is jealous, intensely jealous. Do you know why? Most of us don't even understand. We don't even try to comprehend that God's commitment to His children is a total commitment. That God's love for His children is an exclusive love because God is passionate about you. And that is why He becomes jealous when He sees you in a grip of another. When you are more concerned about your likings and dislikings than His glory. When you are, He becomes intensely jealous when, you, when you're more in love with yourself than with Him. He becomes intensely jealous when you are more in love with your possessions than you are with Him. I understand from the human point of view, jealousy, of course, can be insecure and intense and possessive. But God's jealousy is pure. It is righteous. It's holy. God's jealousy is a protective jealousy because He knows that idols are terrible for you. They're terrible for me. He knows that idols ultimately are very destructive in your life and in my life because he knows that idols have the power to limit God in your life. He knows that idols have power to obscure God in your life. He knows that idols have power to control you. They have power to blind you to the truth. They have power to rob you of the blessings that God wants to give you. And God loves you too much. And that is why he becomes jealous when he sees you flirting with idols under the rubric of worshiping the true God, doing all kinds of things and saying all kinds of things and spending your time and your money and all kinds of things. God loves you too much not to be jealous when he sees you flirting with others. God loves you too much not to be jealous when he sees you obsessed with something or someone, no matter who that is. Someone said, jealousy is God's love protecting itself, and I love that. The precept or the rule of God, then there is a premise or the reason for the rule of God. And then we have 
the premonition and the promise. They really go together, but I separated them. What is that premonition or the warning? Listen carefully, please. I know Satan doesn't want you to hear this, but listen. The premonition is that if you persist in breaking of the second commandment, then you're not only going to suffer, but the next generation is going to suffer as well. Do you know what idolatry does? Do you know what idolatry is? Let me just give you a, a brief definition so you understand it from the practical sense. You see, idolatry is the perversion of what is real. It perverts the truth. Idolatry takes something good and twists it. Idolatry takes something that belongs to God and turns it against God. You see, idolatry is a way of showing hatred to God whether you are conscious of it or not. And many a church have rejected the Ten Commandments because they say, well, how can the loving God punish children of parents who sin? You see, they miss the whole point. They don't understand the principle here. And the principle is very clear. And you must understand this, please. The principle is this, that the fathers who hate God are going to have children who hate God. Children often are impacted by their parents. The principle here is that one generation sets a spiritual tone for the next generation. But there's more to this warning than that. There's more to it. God holds families responsible for their conduct as families from the very beginning. Don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand me. It does not mean that God's grace does not invade a family or of parents who are godless and a child, a son, or a daughter become converted to Christ thoroughly. It doesn't mean that at all. In fact, way back in the Old Testament, God never denied the individual responsibilities. In Ezekiel 18.20, it says, The soul that sin, it shall die. There's an individual responsibility in the Bible. But there's something here I don't want you to miss. Okay, see, right there in the commandment. God said that He will judge those who hate Him to the third and fourth generation. People who don't like these words often make the mistake of thinking, that fathers are guilty and the innocent children are going to be punished. That's not what it means at all. But often the parents who hate God have children who hate God. Let me give you an illustration from history. Several years ago, I drew the comparison between two American families. One is that of Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher and the head of Yale University. And the other was a criminal and a drunk by the name of Max Jucks, J-U-K-E-S. Edwards and Jucks lived around the same time. Jucks had 1,026 descendants. 300 of them served a prison sentence. 190 of them were involved in prostitution. 680 were alcoholics. By contrast, Jonathan Edward, the great revivalist, had 929 descendants. 430 of them were ministers of the gospel. 86 were university professors. 13 were university presidents. 75 authored good books. Seven were elected to the U.S. Congress. And one was vice president of the United States. Speaks for itself. The general principle is that the fathers who curse God will produce children who curse God. Mothers who worship themselves will produce daughters who worship themselves. 
But God's grace can invade and convert somebody in a family like this. And coming from all this mess of generation. But the rule is that parents who hate God produce children who hate God. So God gives us the precept or the rule. Then he gives us the premise or the reason for the rule. Then he gives us premonition or the warning for not keeping the rule. But the best part that I can't wait to get to is the last part, which is the promise of keeping his command. Look at the promise with me, please. Right at the end of the second commandment. And I love this contrast. God judges those who hate him to third and fourth generation. But then those who love him and are going to be blessed for 1,000 generations. I mean, did you get it? Did you get it? Four to 1,000? Why is that contrast? I tell you, there's something important. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. When I came to understand this, I couldn't help but I want to go on my knees and bless the Lord. I want to tell you why it's such a contrast. That contrast tells me Judgment is strange, God. He had to do it because when a person persists and persists, he doesn't say, well, I'm going to get... No, he just does it because out of his justice, out of his character, out of his righteousness, he had to do it. It's not because he enjoys judging, no. But all he loves, pouring grace. And that is why the contrast, fourth to 1,000. Let me tell you something, dads and granddads, moms and grandmas. Let me tell you something. This promise should make you far more concerned about leaving your children and your grandchildren a spiritual legacy far more better than leaving them a diversified portfolio. This promise should make you determined to leave your children and your grandchildren a legacy of passion for God and not property. This promise should compel you to leave a role model for love for Jesus, not love for money. This promise should motivate you to treasure the promises of God on behalf of your children and grandchildren than any earthly treasure that you can get your hand onto. So where do we go from here? Let me tell you this part of a historical incident that had taken place many, many years ago. When the Muslims invaded India, they invaded India under the leadership of a general by the name of Mahmoud Ghazni. When the Muslim army came and they went into a Hindu temple, the Hindu priests in that temple were begging, imploring him, please spare that one idol. He was smashing idols left and right, and they said, but this one, please spare this one. They did not know why, but they just said, this is a sacred one. Please, but he, of course would not listen to them, would not heed their call. Instead, he kept on striking a blow until that idol broke. And all of a sudden, the image burst open and a stream of precious and rare jewels just came out, flowing out of the hollow of that interior of that idol to the shock of everybody. But you know, there is something very spiritual about that. There's something very spiritual 
Because I can tell you from firsthand experience that every time you struck a blow at one of the idols that you are cherishing in your life, your blessing will be far greater than you can imagine. Every time you destroy an idol in your life that you're holding on to, it will bring you untold treasures of grace and mercy and blessings. Every idol that you strike and you break down from it will pour out answers to prayer that you have been waiting for for so long. In some cases, God delays answer to prayer until you deal with these idols in your life. I was just reading in my daily devotion, in my daily Bible that I shared with you, I read every day from the book of Haggai. People were making a ton of money, but they were not, it was disappearing. And he said, you have pockets that has holes in them, and you're getting the money, but the money just disappears. They had an idol. And Haggai, the prophet, said to them, until you get rid of that idol, and until they did, will they experience the genuine, true blessings of God. Only you know. Only you know. Only you know. Oh, no, I know what these idols are. And only you can say, Lord Jesus, with your power and with your strength, I strike a blow at these idols in my life. I will not let them rule my life. I will not let them dominate my thoughts. I will not let them rob me of your blessings. Father God, it is impossible for us to understand the side of eternity the seriousness and the importance of this command. But Father, as much as possible, through your Holy Spirit who dwells in us, open our eyes. Lord, we ask you not for temporary conviction, but for a permanent one. We ask not just for a message that we hear and go out and forget within 30 minutes, but a message that will be imprinted on our hearts daily, on our minds and our wills. And so, Father, as we see our world plunging into darkness, we will hold the light as shining stars in the sky. For precious Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.